welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. I'm Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews for over 20 years now, since 1996, and you can read all of them at that site, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link for my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at new movies that I'm interested in or just want to talk about. And you can find that link at Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the third part of this three-part series looking at films that feature apes as one or more of the main characters. Today, I'm going to be looking at the sequel to the film I covered in the last episode, and that is the sequel to King Kong called King Kong Lives. It came out in 1986. It's a PG-rated film. It does have violence, frightening images, and language. The runtime is about an hour and 45 minutes. Linda Hamilton and Brian Kerwin are the main stars. John Ashton, Peter Michael Getz, Peter Elliott, and George Yasomi, who's also known as George Antoni, get supporting roles. The director is John Gillerman, and the screenplay credited to Ronald Shusset and Stephen Pressfield. If you listen to my review of King Kong, you know all about a lot of the production that went on there. One thing I didn't really explore too much was the sequels that they planned. Dino De Laurentiis, the producer of that 1976 remake of King Kong, not even halfway through its production, he already started to plan for a sequel, really a, a quickie, lower-budgeted sequel to try to make during or maybe even after shooting the main feature. This was a bold undertaking. He was trying to make a franchise about this character who dies in the first entry. As of May of 1976, many months before the release of King Kong, he was already envisioning uh, an idea he had for King Kong in Africa, also called King Kong in the Jungle, and he commissioned his screenwriter for King Kong, Lorenzo Semple Jr., to work with a fellow writer, Joanna Crawford, to come up with a story treatment in a hurry. The treatment involved a group of scholars who tried to resurrect Kong in the style of Frankenstein, and then he would be used as a weapon by, I guess, evil people. Dino told Joanna Crawford to give him a completed script within 30 days so that he could start working on this sequel before King Kong was even in theaters. He had a contract that gave Universal Pictures, who also wanted to come up with their own King Kong movie, a profit share if they waited 18 months after the release of Paramount and De Laurentiis's King Kong to release their version. Dino felt that if he had two or maybe three King Kong films out by the time Universal came out with theirs, his films would already have become the undisputed Kong franchise in the minds of many movie-going audiences. By November of 1976, Joanna Crawford estimated that she was on her ninth rewrite of the King Kong in Africa idea. Now it was going to carry the title of King Kong Part 2. The story took different directions throughout all of those revisions, including not even having it in Africa. One involved King Kong fighting Russians and submarines and helicopters. Dino even flew out to Russia very quickly to see if he could secure locations for his shoot. In another revision, Kong emerged in New Mexico with a Native American leading lady. That was maybe speculated to be an attempt to lure Cher, who was a strong consideration for the 1976 film, but she happened to be pregnant at the time and didn't take it. Crawford also considered remaking the sequel to the 1933 version of King Kong called Son of Kong, which was released also in 1933, but 
She wanted a female Kong and to have more feminist themes. It would be called Daughter of King Kong. But Dino De Laurentiis didn't think that a female ape film would make as much money as resurrecting King Kong, so they decided that they would postpone that idea to a potential third movie if they decided to have one. Federico Fellini, who collaborated with De Laurentiis a number of times, he revealed to De Laurentiis that he would have directed King Kong if he had asked, and Dino asked, hey, great. Why don't you do Daughter of King Kong? Obviously, that never came to fruition. Toward the end of 1976's King Kong, Dino did pass around many contracts to the lead cast members as well as members of the crew to get them to sign on for its sequel, with the stipulation that they could not work on any other films featuring apes. That clause was likely put in there to make sure that Universal Pictures did not employ the services of Dino's members when he needed them. Most cast members and crew members took a pass. Jessica Lange was already under a seven-year contract, but the contract allowed her to do one non-De Laurentiis film per year with his approval, which he never gave because he was miffed that she let it be known publicly that she did not want to do any more King Kong films. Dino joked that he would put her in the sequel anyway, where her character, Duan, would achieve her goal of becoming a big star and then... His resurrected Kong would find her and woo her and then suddenly devour her, shocking audiences. Without his approval, Jessica Lange signed up to play a part written for her by Bob Fosse in 1979's All That Jazz. Dino didn't even know about this until he read about it in the trades. And so Dino called up Lange and they began to work out a deal that eventually got her out of the contract in 1980. Due to the entanglements still on the rights between De Laurentiis and RKO and Universal as to who gets to make the next movie and whether a sequel could be made until it gets ironed out, Dino knew he would need to get the blessing of Universal, which were not only still miffed at Dino for stealing their deal for a Kong film outright from under them, but because he attempted to capitalize on their Jaws franchise in 1977 with his own version called Orca the Killer Whale. And to rub it in, Dino threatened another idea of combining the two by making a film called King Kong vs. Orca. Now, Dino had other ideas to capitalize on popular trends, and that included entering into discussions with Fred Silverman, who was then the president of ABC. He wanted to continue Kong either as a film or a TV series. The success of TV shows like The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman, coincidentally, maybe not, they were also universal properties that inspired him to think of making the Bionic Kong as a way of bringing his character back to life. By 1978, he returned to the movie idea. He wanted to make one, again, involving Russians coming up with another title called King Kong in Moscow. For this, he actually did sign on the director of the 1976 film, John Gillerman, to return if he was going to make it. After this, it went into a dormancy phase. Dino really struggled as to how he could make a follow-up to the 1976 film. The death painted him in kind of a corner. He didn't want something that was going to be instantly laughable to the public. But King Kong, even though it was just kind of a modest hit at the time, it proved to be a resonant hit in the video rental market, enough to suggest that a sequel could still do quite well. De Laurentiis began looking at it again at following it up. He talked to many writers to come up with a concept. He approached screenwriters to concoct a way to bring Kong back to life or devise a way in which he never died so that he could come back for round two. Stephen King, who collaborated with a few De Laurentiis productions 
including Maximum Overdrive, which he wrote and direct for De Laurentiis. He declined the offer by Dino in the end. Ronald Schussett, a screenwriter and also producer of his works, Dino called Schussett one of the few crazy enough to come up with a completely original idea, which is what he wanted. He was one of those screenwriters that Dino sought. Schussett's claim to fame had been in writing the original script to Alien with Dan O'Bannon, and he was working with O'Bannon again at that time on the script to Total Recall, which at that time was a De Laurentiis production. Schussett and his collaborating writing partner, Stephen Pressfield, Pressfield was also helping with Total Recall, they came up with a sequel idea, Son of Kong, but a different one than the one from the 1930s. In their version, they wanted a teenage version of Kong, an offspring that was found that would be the main character, but unlike Kong, this teen Kong would suffer from acrophobia, a fear of heights. And the climax of the film would echo Alfred Hitchcock's vertigo by having Kong Jr. have to scale the Eiffel Tower to save a teenage girl with whom he had become enamored after she gets kidnapped by terrorists. Now, Dino, who had a lot of kooky ideas himself, did not like this idea of doing another movie without the original Kong first. And he lamented that he couldn't find a way to do that, given that he died in the first film. So he said if Son of Kong was ever going to exist, they would need to bring back King Kong for the next film, find him a mate, and then they could continue the franchise with this offspring of Kong. So brainstorming yet again, Shisset and Pressfield came up with their bridge film, whereby Kong survived the fall from the World Trade Center, and he's been kept alive on a respirator, awaiting an artificial heart. Dino thought this was a brilliant idea. He thought that audiences would buy this, but Dino was not so convinced about this other female Kong being found, thinking that King Kong was a unique entity on Earth. Shissett and Pressfield told Dino that King Kong had to have a mother. Surely there must have been others, others that have not been found at some point, and so they persuaded him to see things their way. They pitched their idea to the slated director, John Gillerman, who Dino had moved off of Taipan at the time to put on King Kong Lives, and they all crafted this sequel that would continue the story from King Kong, but not rehash the plot. No femme fatale, no Kong rampaging through a city. The main character of this film would be a man of adventure, an Indiana Jones type, who, and the conflict primarily would take place out in the untamed areas of rural United States. Another factor in the favor of releasing a 1986 follow-up, Universal Studios tour at that time set June of 1986 to unveil their newest attraction called the King Kong Encounter, in which visitors would experience being shaken by a rampaging Kong as he appeared in the 1976 film. And this seemed like the perfect opportunity to get King Kong Lives into theaters while it was in the zeitgeist of the public in Hollywood. To further increase buzz, DEG, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, petitioned for King Kong to get its star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, though, rejected that idea, despite a few petitions from other organizations. Now, because all everybody was out of contract by this point, none of the original cast desired to return, except using archival footage shown in the introduction to the film that depicts Kong after he gets shot down from the top of the World Trade Center and falls to the streets below. We come to learn that Kong improbably survived. He's been existing in a coma for the last 10 years, 
on life support in a giant lab facility in Atlanta awaiting a giant artificial heart to replace the organic one that can no longer support him without medical assistance. Kong also needs a lot of ape plasma for this surgery, but there aren't any apes like him to give the blood. At that time, the lead heart surgeon, Dr. Amy Franklin, played by Linda Hamilton, she laments that only a miracle can save Kong now. That miracle does arrive. A soldier of fortune named Hank Mitchell, he discovers that there's another giant ape in the world while he's out there scouting for diamonds in the jungles of Borneo. He finds a way to bring the female ape back to the United States, and there's no real explanation about how he stuffed the 10-ton beast into an airplane. But he brings this ape back for fortune and glory. The lab needs her plasma, but the two apes sense the presence of each other immediately, which makes it particularly dangerous for any humans trying to keep these two apes from doing what apes want to do naturally. The apes escape their confinement, they run away as fugitives, but the scientists can't have these two roaming the Great Smoky Mountains wrecking havoc. So the military, led by the tenacious Colonel Levitt, played by John Ashton, he's called in with the army to take whatever measures are necessary. And now it's up to Dr. Franklin and Hank Mitchell to lead Kong and Lady Kong to safety somehow. During this time, De Laurentiis had recently bought Embassy Pictures, and he did that so that he could distribute his own films under the new banner of the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, DEG, as I mentioned earlier. De Laurentiis afforded the film an initial $18 million budget for what ends up mostly playing out like this dull and labored soap opera with giant apes. In May of 1986, DEG made a public offering of its stock to try to gin up a little bit more money for the struggling company at this time. For the starring role of Hank Mitchell, Dino looked toward a few actors. One prominent one was Peter Weller, who was eagerly anticipating at that time getting the role of Robocop. Dino said he would offer him more money than he would be offered for Robocop to do King Kong Lives. In the end, Weller wisely decided to opt for Robocop, although he was only going to make about 10% of what Dino was offering for King Kong Lives. So a real choice between art and money at that point. Dino was also pursuing racing driver Danny Sullivan. He was 1985's Indy 500 winner, and he was approached by De Laurentiis, but the shoot conflicted with the start of the next racing season, so he decided, at the advice of his agents, to decline. Linda Hamilton, she initially balked at doing King Kong Lives, but the money offered was just too good. So she accepted. She reasoned that King Kong did not hurt Jessica Lange's career, so it wasn't going to hurt hers. She had very little time to prepare, though, because DEG were going back and forth between her and another actress and negotiating. So they didn't decide until the last minute that Hamilton would be the choice. Hamilton's family background in nursing and medicine did help her to get quickly acclimated. But she soon regretted these film roles in effects-heavy films because the directors on these films hardly work with the actors at all. She compared acting in these kinds of films as responding to a cattle prod. During most of the acting scenes, the actors did not see the King Kongs represented on the screen. It was usually some tall thing with a flag on top that they had to set their eyelines to so that the special effects wizards can put the Kongs in later. But she did see some of the Kong suits that they were going to use at some point, and she was amazed at seeing the Kongs change their expressions and flirt and bat their eyes. But at that moment, she also realized how bad this movie was likely going to be received, and she became horrified at what she had gotten herself into. According to co-star Brian Kerwin, 
Hamilton was growing very unhappy working on the film, and she started counting the days until it was behind her. It also came less than a year prior to Hamilton appearing on the CBS TV show as Catherine Chandler as the beauty in Beauty and the Beast. I guess in this film, too, but she was the beauty who saved the beast, not the beauty who kills him because of that heart transplant. Fred Caruso, he was initially the first producer on the King Kong Lives project, but he moved over to do Blue Velvet for De Laurentiis instead. De Laurentiis company co-founder and president Martha Schumacher, who would eventually become Dino's wife, she took over. She had just completed Maximum Overdrive and was available. Carlo Rambaldi, now a three-time Oscar winner since he had done King Kong in 1976, he came back for the makeup effects. Rambaldi constructed all new ape costumes because the original ones were now unavailable, and he and his team started crafting about a dozen heads for the Kongs in the film, depicting various states of mind, each outfitted with mechanics that a team of technicians would stand about 20 feet away to control. For the giant Kong on the operating table in his opening scene, they used a sophisticated inflatable, one that allowed technicians to crawl in and around to simulate his breathing. Rick Baker, who famously worked on the original King Kong, he felt disrespected for his work on that film, so he passed on returning to do the sequel. And that left Kong to be played by another actor, Peter Elliott this time. He had recently acted and choreographed the ape talent for Greystoke. Elliot, though, is only about five feet tall in real life, so a lot of blue screening and the use of giant models or miniatures are employed to give the illusion that Kong is ten times Elliot's size. Elliot had to wear the suit about 10 hours a day. Rick Baker could only stand three at a time. Elliot would lose about seven pounds in between putting it on and taking it off at the end of the day, just from perspiration, from the heat and the lack of ventilation within the 20-pound suit. Dino, though, felt that Elliot's eyes looked a little too small to be Kong, so he had another actor brought in to do some of the close-ups in the Kong mask. The suits made for Kong and Lady Kong are Pretty much identical, except for Lady Kong has breasts, so we have to fixate on that to readily identify her from the male Kong. As for Baby Kong, yes, there is a Baby Kong that eventually emerges in this film. Carlo Rambaldi wanted to make the Baby Kong a wholly mechanical construct, but money became a sticky issue toward the end of the shoot, so both forms of Baby Kong are played by actors. The newborn Baby Kong was played by this local, at that time, seven-year-old Benjamin Ketchley. He was the son of a music professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and the money that Benjamin received for his work here, as well as the residuals, paid for him to go to college later. The older version of Baby Kong saw Peter Elliott doing double duty. He inhabited that role with a separate head that was designed by Rambaldi. King Kong Lives was shot in eastern Tennessee, in and around the newly built $17 million DEG Studios located in Wilmington, North Carolina. Tennessee and North Carolina are right-to-work states, so DEG did not have to worry about the labor union prices, they could work extended hours, they could work on the weekends, and after 13 weeks of location shooting, eight more weeks of miniature filming photography and working with blue screens would take place inside the DEG studios themselves. In order to encourage the film industry to continue to work within the state, North Carolina Governor Jim Martin had the state's National Guard to assist with the shoot. They would portray the military forces used in the movie, but Washington headquarters denied the request to use the National Guard because it was not good for the image of the Guard for the purpose of this film. So Governor Martin compromised. He rented out 
unofficial military uniforms and props, but still use the National Guard in their new costumes to play essentially what is like the National Guard or Army. John Scott, who did the score for Greystoke, returns to the world of apes here with his compositions for King Kong Liz. This garnered one of the rare instances of praise in this film without much to tout in all other regards. Production designer Peter Merton, he made about 40 miniature sets, by far the tallest order he had ever had in his career to that point, and he had to do it with inexperienced local talent, not part of the Hollywood system. So kind of a King Kong-sized order there. John Gilliman, he received sole credit for King Kong Lives in the end, but he didn't direct every part of this film. He removed himself from the project at some point. Gilliman's son, Michael, had been killed in a car accident during the filming of Sheena, his prior film, and he was still undergoing the grieving process. He started to exhibit a lot of erratic behaviors, such as leaving the set halfway through the day to go sailing. On one occasion, he got into an argument with the production staff, and he disappeared for days. So... Charles McCracken, he was a documentary filmmaker in the area. He stepped in to complete the picture. He did not receive credit, but McCracken pretty much took over the film at some point. Test audiences, when they saw King Kong Lives, they despised it. The creative team speculated that audiences did not detect what the tone of the film should be, and that's why they were having problems. The writers claimed that they wrote King Kong Lives to be a semi-spoof, but everybody making the film treated it as if it was going to be a serious effort, and that made what resulted seem all the more silly. Knowing that King Kong Lives would be skewered by film critics, DEG did not allow any preview screenings. They also refused to send out clips to national TV critics unless they promised in writing that they would only use them on their local shows. No national shows were allowed to show any clips from King Kong Lives. Cisco Niebert got a letter from DEG announcing this stipulation. They refused to sign it. They called the lack of clips on their show almost a public service because the movie was just that bad. Other national film critics, instead of showing clips, they would show moments from the trailer instead. And it must have been a really bad year for movies in 1986. The only Golden Raspberry Award. The Razzies nomination that King Kong Liz received was for the one aspect that some critics actually found praiseworthy, Carlo Rambaldi's effects, which lost out to Industrial Light and Magic's Howard the Duck work. Now, King Kong Liz's awfulness even shocked those who made the movie. Linda Hamilton was stunned when she finally viewed the film and how ridiculous it played. Co-writer Stephen Pressman, he actually was very excited when it was about to receive its release. He invited everybody he knew to the theater with him, and he told them to get there early so they could all sit together because it was going to be a packed house. He even rented out the place next to the theater for a post-screening celebration. But only one other person bothered to show up besides Pressman and his guests at the showing, and everybody watched this movie in silence. And soon, all of his friends that he brought with him found excuses to leave instead of stay for that after party. Despite its reputation, despite its lambasting by the film critics, King Kong Lives has managed to gain a cult following among people primarily who love bad movies. John Wilson, the co-founder of the Razzies, calls King Kong Lives one of the most idiotically entertaining sequels ever made. The gamble by DEG to fly under the radar of film critics ended up not working. King Kong Lives tanked and hard at the box office. It debuted at a very lowly 16th place, not even anywhere approaching the top 10, and it fell out of most theaters by its third week. In total, King Kong Lives took a paltry $4.7 million in the U.S. off of its $18 million budget. 
Now, King Kong lives by the end of this film. I mentioned Baby Kong. It implies a forthcoming entry to continue that character and his adventures, as envisioned by Shisset and Pressfield, to the Teen Kong eventually. But De Laurentiis's Kong franchise pretty much died from the only thing that could kill Kong for good, a complete lack of box office appeal. So King Kong would be dead and buried, at least for De Laurentiis. Peter Jackson would resurrect him in 2005, very famously, and much better, by the way. King Kong Liz is pretty much a terrible movie, an entertaining kind of terrible in some respects, but not a film I could recommend to anyone who is not intent to kind of joke around and laugh at it throughout. So one and a half stars is what I give King Kong Lives. One and a half stars on my scale means I do think that this is a poor movie, one I definitely would steer just about anybody from watching unless I knew that, that they really like stinkers. You know, those kinds of films that some people consider so bad they're good. This can qualify for some people, even though I personally found it mostly tedious. So one and a half stars is the best I can give King Kong Lives. Now, despite its complete and utter failure at the box office, believe it or not, Dino De Laurentiis thought that there still was going to be life for the franchise, a producer from De Laurentiis Productions approached Filmation to create an animated spinoff featuring the son of Kong from King Kong Lives. The producer had no real concept in mind, but he suggested crazy ideas that King Kong could be like Superman. He could grow in height. He could fly through space to other planets. He could shoot laser from his eyes. He could become invisible. Really, the sky was the limit as to the powers. Filmation talked the producer down from this. And they spent two weeks on the designs and the character concepts. They even concocted a submarine that would be used by Kid Kong, which is what he was going to be called. The submarine, which was dubbed the Coco Nautilus. It could fly and it can even head out into space. But Dino only saw Filmation as work for hire. They did not want to go in as partners to this. And that was unacceptable to the animation studio, so the deal was off. So we never did get to see Dino continue the Kong franchise at all. In fact... King Kong Lives is pretty much buried today. There's been no home video release since 2004's DVD. No streaming on any streaming services, at least in the United States. I think there are some international versions that you can find, which is actually where I had to find this film. I had to pay kind of a pretty penny just to be able to deliver this review. So I hope that you enjoy it. I'm going to probably sell this on eBay myself. I can't see myself actually sitting through it another time between now and the time I'm eventually on a respirator. So King Kong Lives does not live very much to this day in the minds of most people. If you have your own thoughts on King Kong Lives that you want to impart, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. You can find my email link, links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. Any of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me. As far as what I'm going to be doing next week, I'm going to be starting a kind of a four-part series, actually starting with a film not from the 1980s and was basically the inspiration for King Kong's remake to come out in 1976. Anyway, 1975, the first summer blockbuster in the minds of many people. I'm talking about Jaws, the Steven Spielberg film from 1975 for the next episode of Around the World in 80s Movies, if you'll indulge a 70s classic for that. So check out Jaws if you haven't seen it in a while, and I'll be covering that on the next episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s Movies. (laughs) 